Take your Bible, turn to 2nd John. 2nd and 3rd John are the two shortest books. Be preaching 2nd this week, 3rd next week. This is the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father, and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Children of your elect sister, greet you. Let us ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, you have revealed yourself in your word. And we do ask that you would do that now. That we might hear from heaven, might grow in our faith and our hope and our love for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, some of you may notice, I know there's at least maybe three or four of us in the room, but right now we are undergoing the largest sporting event in the history of the world. Yes, I am going to use a soccer illustration. I will probably use a soccer illustration every week I can figure out how to do so while the World Cup is being played. World Cup is happening now. It started just uh, Thursday, I guess. And and to put it in perspective, we in America, uh, we tend to be maybe a little bit uh, self-centered. Most Americans will say, well, you know, the Super Bowl is the, the biggest sporting event in the world. Both monetarily... And in viewers, it is not in the top five. Actually, the top three are all soccer. After that, depending on which kind of metric you're using, it's either cricket or uh, motor racing uh, or golf, depending on those. But it's not not football. It's just not. It's not even close. Sorry. (laughs) To put that in perspective, 
the Super Bowl that the Panthers played in, 112 million people watched it in the United States. 112 million people in the United States watched the Super Bowl that the Panthers played in. The Women's World Cup Final. Not the men's, but the Women's World Cup Final had more than half of that in the United States alone and had 750 million views worldwide. Put that in perspective. Seven times as many people watched the Super Bowl, I mean, watched the Women's World Cup Final worldwide than did watch the Super Bowl. Kind of put it in bigger perspective. The last time the Men's World Cup was played four years ago, the average game was watched by 200 million people, and the final was watched by just less than a billion one-sixth of the world's population gathered around their televisions all at the same moment to watch one two-hour game. That's crazy to think about. We sometimes forget how big this is. When uh, the World Cup was being played in Germany, Germany had a national crisis because they thought they were going to run out of beer. (laughs) I am not making that up. When it was in South Africa, they had problems because the prostitutes started arriving two years in advance. The South African government was overrun because uh, they, until the World Cup got there, they couldn't support the industry, so to speak. Most people don't know this part of it. When the World Cup shows up, FIFA brings in uh, infrastructure with it. They actually create their own legal system, and they make new jails in the country that are governed by international law and not the laws of the country. So if you do something dumb in Russia right now, you don't have to worry about the Russian government. You have to worry about FIFA, which is infinitely more corrupt. From the moment you're arrested to the moment you receive a 25-year life sentence when it was in South Africa, you know how long that was? It was less than 36 hours. From the moment you're arrested to 25-year imprisonment, less than 36 hours. The interesting thing right now that I've enjoyed, not just the soccer element of it, but watching what's happening in America, because you may not realize this because nobody follows soccer here, but we didn't qualify. For the first time in ages and ages, America, the great powerhouse of athletics, I mean, everybody knows, or at least we think we are, we're the best at everything, we didn't actually qualify. We lost to teams that we shouldn't lose to, and we missed out on the most profitable event in sporting history. And it's been really interesting to watch how the American athletes are dealing with it. Uh, one gentleman, uh, the, the great of the previous generation, he's kind of nearing retirement, uh, Landon Donovan, has actually come out and said he's going to be Mexican for the tournament. And he's wearing all Mexican jerseys and carrying Mexican scarves, and he's getting absolutely thrashed by the Americans for it. Most of the other guys, it's actually been so hurtful to their hearts. Uh, our next great, Christian Pulicic, uh, has actually gone into hiding. He's just not even showing up. He's one of the great players in the world, and he's just disappeared. He's just kind of gone into hiding. It's really interesting because you're watching a generation, and it's only played every four years, you're watching a generation of American athletes that are kind of watching the world change around them, and they don't know what to do with it because they're not part of it. It's really interesting to see an athletic competition where Americans are outsiders. I mean, even the Winter Olympics, we're still great at that. But here, for the first time in ages, certainly in my lifetime, we're genuine outsiders. We don't belong. And here's a competition for greatness. Here's the world changing in front of us, and we're on the outside. 
In many ways, that's actually a very kind of similar situation to what's taking place in 2 John. The world is changing all around the church. You're watching the Greco-Roman world be genuinely transformed in new and in some ways wonderful ways and new and in some ways terrible ways, and the church is a complete outsider. They're not part of the social infrastructure of the land. They're outcasts. They're rejects. They're weirdos and wackos. I mean, there, there are legends going around the church at this point that they're cannibals because they eat the flesh of their Savior. There's weird legends going around that they practice incest because they marry their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're genuine rejects in the culture. And they don't entirely know what to do with themselves. Conservative scholars think this letter was written probably in the neighborhood of 80 to 85 A.D. It's uh, very near the end of the scriptures, both in the Bible's location but chronologically. It's being written by the Apostle John. It's uh, great-grandpa John. He's a bajillion years old, and it's being written right at the end of his life. And he's processing with the Christians what it's like to be this sort of outcast. What it's like to be this kind of reject. What it's like to be kind of kicked out of the social contract of the land. In fact, actually, we suspect it's so bad that when he gives his greetings, it's all written kind of sort of in code language. The elder, he doesn't identify himself, the elder. Why would he be the elder? Because one, he's probably the only guy alive left. So you can put that definite one. The elder, he's a bajillion years old. Uh, He's the only kind of apostle around. He's the guy that everybody would know. Who's he writing to? To the elect lady and her children. This is not written to a family. It's written to a church. And it's tagged in kind of code language in case it gets intercepted. It's written to the elect lady. It's written to a specific church and kind of all of the Christians affiliated with that. That's why at the end he concludes with the children of your elect sister greet you. The saints from the church wherever he is greets the saints in the church wherever it's going to. It's written in kind of sort of military language. You put it in code so that people are protected because it's not an easy time to be a Christian. The world is changing. And our brothers and sisters were on the outside. And it's interesting because here the old man gives a bit of advice. It's a short letter. Like I said, I love how he says, I'd rather not use pen and ink. And it's like, well, you barely did. It's not that long, my friend. I mean, to think about you had to send this by courier, how dangerous that was, how expensive it was. You would think maybe you'd want to write more. Okay, guess not. And to give them kind of, in essence, a, a, a framework to view the changing world around them. And it's interesting, he has one command with a whole bunch of explanations underneath. Verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as I'm writing to you a new commandment, because I'm not. This is the way it's been from the beginning. That we, the saints, love one another. That's it. That's the entire thing. That's your entire framework for how to exist in a world that hates you, in a changing culture where you're a social uh, outcast. Love one another. 
thank you, John. That's very helpful, I guess. Um, maybe a little bit of, of clarification would help. Again, we live in a culture today where loving one another, our culture is all about that. Now, they define it in all the wrong and most perverse ways you could possibly think of, but they're all for that. And so we get to his first qualification. What does it mean that we love one another? How do the saints love one another in this kind of changing world where we're social outcasts? First, loving the saints means obeying God's commands. And I think probably for most of us, this would be a little bit of a kind of a shocking direction change in the book. I mean, you've just told us in verse 5 that we're supposed to love one another. That's the key for the saints interacting with each other. And I would think that when you go to define loving one another, it would be a horizontal definition. I mean, it makes sense, right? If If we're talking about something that exists between two horizontal parties, peers, you would think that the definition would then thereby be a horizontal definition. If you are to love the saints, well then tell me what loving the saints looks like. How how do I interact with them? And it's intriguing. That's not what John does. He gives a vertical definition. How do you love the saints? How do you take care of the saints? Well, you obey God's commands. Verse 6, he says, I mean, this is clear. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. What does loving the saints look like? It looks like obedience to God's commandments. And I would suggest that the vast majority of us never think in that category. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're having a conversation with somebody and through that you get kind of convicted and you're like, you know, I need to love my spouse better. Or I need to love my children better. Or I need to love my neighbor better. Or I need to love my Christian coworkers better. I need to put whatever person in there, whatever saint in there. What's the next step that most of us are then going to jump to? We're going to most likely jump to a list of things that we do in relationship to them. I'm going to love my spouse better. I'm not going to get irritated when he leaves his socks on the dining room table or whatever it is. Not that that ever happens in our house. I'm going to love my children better. I won't lose my temper when they're being crazy. We define our love as this kind of horizontal activity with the person around. And in doing so, we miss something really important. That the loving one another, it's a vertical activity. It's a relationship with God sort of activity, which is why he defines it that way. It's weird to think about. You want to love your spouse? Because of your love for God, keep the Ten Commandments. Really? I mean, I wouldn't have thought about it that way. I mean, you mean not worshiping any other gods and, you know, worshiping God the way that he wants to be worshipped? And You mean I can love my spouse by not taking the Lord's name in vain? 
wait, you mean that if I need to love my children better, I could use Sunday and keep it holy and that would love my children better? That's absolutely right. It's intriguing that the way he shapes our relationship with one another is ultimately a vertical relationship. And that's going to be significant because of what he transitions into immediately following. Look, if, if loving the saints is ultimately about our relationship with God, well, it would make sense then that we have to be very careful with who we qualify as saints. Suddenly, we, we can't really kind of fall prey to the culture of nice all around us where we accept everyone and everything. You realize, I mean, there was, we have politically correct, that's what we call it today, but a similar kind of thinking existed in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. I mean, they had a whole pantheon of gods. I mean, this kind of point, like, you worship your God, I worship my God, we're all cool together, right? That's when they actually, the Christians get in trouble, is when they start saying, well, I'm going to worship my God, and you should too, because yours is not actually a God. Hey, man, hey, man, who are you to tell me that my God's not actually a God? To say that there's only one God, that my life is defined by my relationship with him and with him only. Loving the saints means obeying God's commands. Secondly, it also means that this love isn't blind acceptance. And this is maybe the part I think that's probably going to be a little bit harder for us. That first one, I can make that point, and you're kind of like, oh, I guess maybe I haven't thought about it that way. I probably should think about it that way. But I'm cool with that. I'm okay with it. This is the one where we maybe get our toes stepped on a little bit more. Love isn't blind acceptance. Why is it that we should love each other? Well, in verse 7, he gives the transition. Why is it that love is defined by God's commands? Well, because many deceivers have gone out into the world. Interesting. Where have they gone out from? They're going out from the church. And he gives kind of three explanations, three qualifiers underneath. They've gone out from our midst. We know that from Jude and other places as well. The false teachers almost always arrive from inside the church. They're marked by a confession that it's an altering of the person and work of Jesus, and that they're marked as being connected with the deceiver and the Antichrist. And I think it's intriguing the thought process that John is going through. We live in a world and a time in which it's difficult to be a Christian. Therefore, Christians need to be committed to loving each other. The way that they're going to love each other is by keeping God's commandments. And oh yeah, by the way, everyone who says they're a Christian isn't necessarily a Christian. Really? I mean, that, that's the point that you were going to make. Well, that's where he chooses to go. To remind that not everyone, even coming from inside the church, are Christians. And I guess I think If you think about it in the terms of political correctness, it makes sense, doesn't it? That even today we like the idea of just being like, well, you know, maybe they're just a little incorrect. I mean, maybe they're just a little bit wrong. Maybe, I mean, I'm sure they have good intentions. For those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And it's interesting, he he uses the definite pronoun 
to highlight the closeness of the connection between these types of false teachers and the devil himself. There's a reality he warns about these false teachers that reshape the faith. Now, again, I'd I'd love to say, well, you know what, that was back then, but we, we certainly don't have to worry about that now. But again, you know, that's just not the case. I mean, there are more Christian books published now than any other time in human history. And I use that Christian very loosely. Very loosely. You want to exercise in depression, take me to the Christian bookstore and let me walk you through it. False teacher, false teacher, false teacher, confused, false teacher. Very good. PCA. I don't know why that's on that shelf. False teacher. I mean, it's real, I do it all the time. I have a friend who used to work in a, a Christian bookstore around town. I'd go visit him periodically. And I love just kind of pestering him, being like, brother. He wasn't the boss, which is why I could ask these questions. I'm like, brother, why are you selling this person's books? And why do you have a huge display right up front? He's like, it's the publishers. We can't do anything about it. We've said that as a church, kind of corporately in America today, that we're going to be accepting, we're going to be tolerant, we're going to kind of bring everybody in. And it's interesting, that's the exact opposite of John's solution. John's solution is a recommitment to obedience in God and a recommitment to sharp boundary lines. Clear distinctions. Knowing who's on the inside and who's on the outside. And then he concludes with uh, kind of recognizing that this love that's not going to be blind acceptance, it's going to be cautious in a crazy world. And he gives three kind of specific commands on how that should be played out. And none of them are politically correct. Verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. He, He doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. That's not possible. But instead, he says, look, you need to be careful so that you are not deceived and lose all of the benefits of the hard work that you have put in. You've been working hard to store up treasures for yourself in heaven. You don't don't want to be deceived. You don't want to be confused. You don't want to be led astray and then lose the benefit of all your hard work. My favorite illustration of this one is Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon? Gideon does amazing things, right? The Lord comes and uses him. He kind of starts out kind of a little bit cowardly. And then the Lord uses him to do kind of really, really astounding things. But then when you get to the end of his story, how does it end? I only know it in the ESV. I'm sorry. It's got a strong word in it. And all of Israel hoard themselves before the Lord. That's the summary of the end of his ministry. Wow. I'm not sure I would call that a success, really. I'm not sure I'd really want to say that's how I want to go out. If we're going to talk about my legacy, I'm pretty sure that's not the legacy I want to leave behind. And so the solution is for us to be careful and to watch ourselves. I might humbly suggest that one of those great things for us, just again, particular application for those in this room, is that we work very, very careful 
sorry, we work very, very hard to be careful about the Christian content that we consume. That we, we work hard to be discerning, to run it through this first. I'm, I'm not honestly so worried about you listening to false teachers per se, because I think most of y'all would sniff that out fairly carefully. I would be much more concerned about listening to confusing teachers or confused teachers and then not running it through this. Again, not because I don't trust you or I don't love you, but because I know the human condition. There's a reason why he says watch over yourselves. It's not watch over others. It's not start by picking apart what they're doing, but let's make sure that what I'm doing, that I'm, I'm drinking from the right fountain. Watch yourself so that you may not lose your reward. And then he, he kind of acknowledges that there's another danger that comes with that. And I think this one is particularly true for Reformed theology, particularly true for Presbyterians. Alan and I have been talking about this now for three years. Why is it that Presbyterianism has such a struggle to stay conservative? If you look at the history of Presbyterianism, which I firmly believe is what the Bible teaches for church government, I don't think there's another option. I think all the other options, it's fine that they do that. That can be their conviction. I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong biblically. But the amazing thing is, is everyone in Presbyterian history, they never stay conservative for long. Why? Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And what he's describing here has a technical term to it that all the commentaries use. It's called being a progressive. Someone who is not content with the basics, but has to quickly progress past that. That's the heart of his warning here is everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ is to say, look, well, I've got this mastered and I'm going to jump ahead. I'm going to step on the accelerator and go all the way to the end. But unfortunately, they don't know exactly where to stop because they didn't master the beginning part. And so they go zooming well past the finish line. Do you ever like watch track meets for like little kids or little, you know, little peewee baseball? It's always good fun, right? Where a kid doesn't figure out where he's supposed to stop. And he runs to first base and then just continues into the outfield. And you're like, no, 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 or whatever, you know. Or they, they I've seen the one where they do like the, the loop home run and then they try to get a second one out of it. I love that one. But again, how much of a danger is this? I would suggest this is it. Like, this is the biggie for Presbyterianism. is for us to grow tired or bored with the basics and to say, I have to go do something new. And I'm going to contend, I'm going to suggest that for the younger people in the room, this is going to be an even bigger danger for us because we have been raised on constant stimulation. We grow bored, I I mean, we grow bored while we're talking. We're bored of our own voices. We're bored of the sentences before they make it out of our mouths. To skip steps, what a temptation. 
because we're bored. I, I'm suggest, I think this is inherent to Presbyterianism in some form or fashion. And part of that is because it tends to draw such intellectual people that sometimes we understand it so quickly we get tired of it. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And it's interesting here that he's not saying whoever abides in the person of God. That's what we get all throughout the scriptures. Abide in Jesus. Abide in me and I in him. Isn't it's not here. What is he saying? Abide in the teaching. It's in the content of the faith. Abide in the person and work, the revelation of King Jesus. This is the story of God's redemption of mankind in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never grow bored of that. May we never want to skip steps to get past that, to get out of that, to get away from that. And then he goes, jumps to the thing that's probably the most politically incorrect of them all. And you kind of have to give a little bit of backstory, I guess, before we get to it. You remember that in this time in uh, human history, you don't have like a, a super sophisticated hotel system like we do now. I mean, our just denomination as a whole just descended into Atlanta last week into one hotel. We didn't even fill the hotel. Other guests from other places, they actually had another uh, conference there when we started uh, that was just finishing up. And the whole denomination kind of all gets there together. Again, it's why it always freaks me out to have like our entire denomination, a large percentage of the leadership all in one place. Same way when we're all in the same car, it always drives me a little squirrely. One bad wreck and this church is going to be in a weird situation. So when you traveled, instead of finding a hotel to stay in, you would oftentimes stay with family or friends. Uh, And if you were a Christian, you stayed with church people. It was part of your Christian obligation as part of hospitality. If you traveled somewhere, you expected to be boarded by them. And here in verse 10, he kind of gives expectations. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of Christ that he's kind of giving them, the warning them of, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so what he's saying is, look, if if you as a Christian, as part of your good deeds, receive in this false teacher and house him and allow him to propagate these false teachings from your base of resources, you're a participant in his false teaching and you are in some way taking part in his wicked works. Now, I recognize when I finished 1 John last week, we kind of left on a little bit of a difficult note, didn't we? We're kind of dealing with the obligation to deal with the saints versus an obligation to deal with the world. You are obligated to pray for God's people. You are obligated to help God's people. You're obligated to care for God's people. You're not obligated to do that for the unbeliever. Now, you may choose to do so. I believe you're obligated to evangelize them. That's not an optional. I think you should pray as part of that evangelism. But it's interesting here, he's, he's drawing that clear distinction again. 
Look, when the Christians travel and you show up in this era and you need Christian hospitality, guess what? They're obligated to take care of you because you're family. But the false teachers you're obligated to reject, to put away, to not share Christian fellowship with. Another kind of verbiage for the excommunicate. You don't share that union with them. You don't share that communion with them because you don't have a common union. Because they are not part of God's people. And again, uh, think about this kind of from uh, our limited perspective. How many times, again, today where we see folks, maybe if they're disciplined or excommunicated, where it has no meaning. Because the church doesn't actually enforce any distinction between who's in and who's out. I'll kind of ask it to a different way. If an outsider, let's say you've got an exchange student to come into your home. Would they notice any difference between how you treat church members and how you treat pagans? That's part of what he's asking. And again, that's not to say we be jerks, because we never should be jerks. That's not, that's not what we're called to be. But it does mean that the people of God have special benefits attached to being part of the people of God. The church should take care of the church in a different way. Why? Well, I think all of this kind of comes back to the greeting that he begins with. John, the elder, to the church and her children, whom I know in the truth, not only I, but also all of us who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. We are creatures of God. We are creatures of his truth. And the consequence of being in that is that we have grace and mercy and peace. And they are with us and they will be with us. You see, this is one of the great mechanisms of evangelism. Would you like grace? Would you like mercy? Would you like peace? I happen to know in Fort Mill where you can find those three. And I happen to know who you can find them with. And you know, the nice thing is, is we should be able as God's people to say, look, you find these in Christ and you want to see what it looks like. You want to see the physical location here. Come into Christ Ridge. Just step in the door. Grace and peace and mercy live here because we live here. See, I think part of what John is dealing with, I think actually, I guess at the heart of it is, this uniqueness of who the people of God are, not because we're that special, but because the work of Christ is that great. You see, actually, I think that's really the heart of it is when we make no distinction between Christian and non-Christian, when we say that gap really isn't that big, ultimately what we're saying is the redemption that Christ accomplished isn't that special. It didn't accomplish that much. I mean, unbeliever, believer, there's not that big of a difference. Well, why? Because Christ didn't do that much. No, the reality is that Christ has transformed people. They're changed from death into life. 
creatures of no mercy into creatures of mercy. That transformation is huge and should be visible. Now, it's also going to be visible here in just a moment when we come to the tables. We have bread and wine, grape juice, grain and grape, because of how this table functions. If you haven't studied church history, you wouldn't know that at this point in the early church, they had closed communion. So what would happen is everybody would be welcome for this part of the service where the uh, elder would read the scripture and preach and pray and such. And then when it came time for communion, they would say to the visitors, we love you. We're glad that you came, but you're not welcome now. They'd shake their hand, they'd give them hugs or whatever, and they'd send them out. And then the family of God would eat with just the family of God because this is a table of mercy and grace and peace. In fact, actually, they would go so far as to say, you know, the worship service is the Word of God. We read it, we sing it, we pray it, I preach it, and we see it. In fact, actually, that's how they view this. Is This is kind of a physical representation of the reality of the Word of God. That God's promises are for one brief moment put into physicality for the people of God. That we may taste and see God's promises given to us. May it be that we, as we live in a changing world, and my goodness, is it changing? May it be that we take John's warnings to heart, that we too would walk in truth and love and mercy and grace, and that our evangelism would be blessed because of it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that you would transform the people of God. Not because we are mighty, but indeed because we are weak. And even now, We ask that you administer to us in this time. For Christ's sake, amen.